Okay, so last couple of weeks we've been talking, and, and Lord willing, we're going to finish this discussion tonight. Uh, by finish, I don't mean you'll be satisfied. By finish, I mean we'll be done talking about it for the time being uh, and move on. Um, and I don't know that tonight's will be as as satisfying in terms of concludedness as some of the other stuff that we've looked at. But uh, I think this is a, these are important discussions to have. Um, and I do think it's important for us together collectively to think this through out loud. So uh, last week we looked at this, uh, the concept of, the, the first week basically was, uh, does the Bible say anything about this? And if so, what? What does the Bible have to say about this? And we just tried to look at the Word of God on that. Um, last week we looked at, uh, does being gay mean you go to hell? Um, and I literally have had this conversation with people in the past days and weeks, uh, several people, not theoretically, practically, like, does this mean I have to go to hell um, because this is, this is me? Um, or is it possible to be a Christian and be gay? Uh, deep, deep discussion. And we looked at where that comes from last week in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, we looked at the context and what Paul is saying about them. Um, and obviously, the answer is being gay has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. I mean, that's long and short of it is it has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. Being saved is about whether or not you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what it's about. Do we believe that being saved, Jesus Christ addresses things that are wrong in your life? Absolutely. No doubt about it. But it's the Spirit of God that does that. You don't clean up anything else before you come to Christ, right? If you could clean it up yourself, you wouldn't need Christ. It's the power of Christ in you. And so we want to introduce people to Jesus and then he can take care of those things. So, um, you know, the, the discussion in 1 Corinthians 6 was, you know, neither the immoral, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor the greedy, nor homosexual offenders, nor male prostitutes, nor slanderers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that has been taken at times to mean if you are homosexual, you can't be saved. And yet, when you look at what Paul's saying there, but that's what you were, and you were washed and justified and sanctified. And then that whole thing is the launching point for his argument. So stop going and being with prostitutes at the temple. In other words, if the sexually immoral are not believers, the Corinthians are the sexually immoral. And how, how would Paul be saying to them, but you've been washed and justified and sanctified? His whole argument is not, when you do this, you can't be saved. His whole argument is, that's what you did because you weren't saved. And now that you are a child of God, live who you are. Remember who you are. It was an identity-based argument for them to knock it off with what they thought they were allowed to do. Um, And so we looked at that last week. Uh, Then we went to Genesis 19 and looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, The the logic, the rationale that um, what the Bible actually teaches against is rape and not homosexual sin, um, which is clearly not what the Bible is teaching in that particular uh, session or that particular idea there. Um, uh, And even last week we looked at, you know, why did Lot offer his daughters in place of the angels who had come? Um, And, you know, it's kind of like, well, what did Lot think the problem was? Um, Clearly, Lot thought thought the problem was the homosexual sin that was there. That was the thing that was abominable to God. He offered his daughters. He didn't offer his sons-in-law. He didn't offer himself, right? He offered his daughters. He thought this was the solution to the thing that was terrible before the Lord. So the teaching in the Word of God is very clear that this is not um, just a different way of living or just a different life. This is stuff that we are called to live pure from. Um, so homosexual and same-sex activity is definitely categorized in Scripture, if you have read it with us, as sinful. Uh, that being said, I think the thing we want to look at tonight is the bigger picture of, so what does the church do with this? And I, I guess the reason that this all that, that I spent two weeks talking about all that is so we could talk about this stuff tonight. Um, because I would ask you in your soul to evaluate, do you think we as believers, as the body of Christ around the world as a whole, have done a really bang-up great job at dealing with this issue in our world? I really don't think we have. And why do I say that? Well, I think we're going to have to face some things about uh, our calling and our evaluation from the Word of God um, tonight and, and take a look at maybe where we should reevaluate 
how we respond and how we react. So we're going to start by looking at this question that I get a lot of times in this discussion, which is, does God make people gay? All right, so somebody comes to you and says, does God make people gay? What do you say to that? Does anybody have a, a stock answer to that question? No? Saying you, are you saying you don't have an answer, or are you saying he doesn't no, make them gay? He doesn't make them. he doesn't make them gay, all right? What do you guys think? Okay. So we all have stuff born into us that is sinful. My particular brand of flesh may look different than your brand of flesh. Um, for many, many people, that is a reason for me to feel superior to you because I have good flesh and you have bad flesh, but flesh is still flesh. You, your trap may be high-performing flesh where you just really accomplish everything. And so you're just very susceptible to pride. Oh, pride's a good sin, right? That's a really good sin. Except the only thing in the Bible that it says um, God resists a person if they're like this is the proud, right? As a matter of fact, if you go into the Old Testament, I think it's Proverbs 30. I'm just off the top of my head here. But it says there are some things God hates. Do you know homosexual is not one of them? Do you know what it says? A lying tongue, false weights, proud heart, people who are puffed up and people who are self-centered. Like that's, that's what it says in the Old Testament. So there's this like idea out there that you know, this is the, the end-all, be-all of sins. I had someone tell me one time I was running sound for our church service, and uh, they came back to me and said, you know how the Antichrist is going to be, um, what did he say? He's going to be a homosexual clone. And I was like, please explain. <laughs> I don't understand what you're talking about. And somehow they had gotten in their head that um, a clone was soulless. So that was clearly what the Antichrist was going to be was without a soul. And they were going to be doomed. So clearly they were also homosexual. And I was kind of like, I don't really understand anything that you're talking about. Like, where does this come from? And we t- you know, kind of talked about what the Bible actually says about the Antichrist, which isn't anything about that. So it was a very strange conversation. We have very strange ideas and misinformation. My hope is coming out of this that we won't live there. But this is one of those things that gets confusing. Does God make people gay? So we've got to kind of like put our heads around this. Yeah, I think there's a lot of miscommunication on this thing. Um, first of all, the premise of this statement, this question, does God make people gay? Someone's identity is not wrapped up in their sexuality. Okay? Someone's identity is not wrapped up in their sexuality. It just isn't. It's, it, first of all, it doesn't take a whole lot for someone to be sexually turned on. I mean, this, this is not some grand scheme. It's like saying that the first person that, that you uh, feel sexually attracted to must be the one God made for you because they turned you on. Like, being turned on is a biological process that God made in healthy people that responds as a powerful force, but it's not some, you know, watershed moment of like, oh, this is it. And so just being able to be turned on by, by someone is not evidence of who you are at your very core. Okay, And somehow we've swapped that. Uh, Rob's talking about God makes people with different uh, abilities and, and characteristics and traits and things like that. And that must speak to this bigger picture, which is your sexuality. And I would argue that it's exactly the opposite. The bigger picture is what God made you to be. A smaller picture is what your sexual you know, uh, kind of n- norms are for you. That's much smaller than who you are. Uh, and so we kind of get this idea of identity all turned around. Um, the reason that this question gets asked is because if God makes people gay, then who's to blame for them being gay? Why would God make me gay and then tell me it's wrong? Why is he like, you know, up in heaven trying to just make me miserable? Is he trying to like thwart the joy in my life? And so you got to kind of dig down deep into your soul about what do you believe about God? What do you believe about his character? What do you believe about his heart for people? Do you, do you believe that that's what he does and that's who he is? Like, ha ha, gotcha. You know, like I'm going to make this person who desperately wants to get married and I'm going to make them give them the gift of singleness. Ha 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 Like that's kind of the idea. Like you, you, your hope for happiness is gone now because, right? 
Like God is somewhere up, somewhere up in heaven taking joy in our pain or our frustration or, or like the catch-22-ness of our lives. That is not a biblical picture of the God that we serve. The God we serve says, how will he hold back anything good to those he... If he didn't hold back his son, I mean, think about that. Would, if you were willing to give your son's life for someone, would you then go... Yeah, but you know what? You can't borrow 10 bucks from me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, if I'm willing to pay that price, what am I going to hold back from you exactly that would be good for you? The clear rhetorical answer is nothing. So the picture of God in the Word of God is not one who's like setting people up to fail and then like, now I get to smite you. You know, that kind of, like, that's just not the picture in the Word of God. And yet we let that be the discussion out there. Um, the, The question comes to, Ultimately, and I will tell you this in my discussions with people who have walked this path or are walking this path, the the deepest question here is this. Is it possible for God to love me even though I think I'm gay? Is God mad at me? Is it hopeless for me? Is there any possibility that I could belong, that I could be a part, that I could matter to God with this problem in my life? That's a really big question to answer. And so what we do, of course, is we dive into the Word of God and we take out Leviticus and we show them how it's a sin and then we whip out Romans 1 and we say, you know, God gave them up. And and this, of course, answers the question in their heart, could I matter to God, right? Because we're not listening. We're so concerned about being right, and you're right, homosexuality is a sin, that we don't actually answer the question they're asking and we don't show them the concern that... God showed them by reaching out to them in love. And so let's talk about what we know from the Word of God here. We know without a doubt that God makes people, right? God is the creator. He is the one who, I put a couple of verses down here. Uh, Psalm 139, 13, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. The picture of God, even before birth, designing me and molding me and making me, um, For someone who's born with a disability, that can be a challenge about the faithfulness and the goodness of God. You knit me together in my mother's womb and I came out disabled? How is that okay? What does that say about God's love for me? These are doctrines that could be feel-good, but sometimes are very difficult to digest. Jeremiah 1.4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. God's intimately involved with us as we are being formed, as we are being created in our mother's womb. Okay, And so there is no doubt that God formed man out of the dust of the ground from Genesis 2. There is no doubt that God formed each one of us. God makes us. God gives us personality. He gives us abilities. He gives us brain power. He gives us all of the, the things that we have. None of us earned any of this. God gave it to us because he's the creator. So God made us. I didn't get to say, hey, you know what? I want to be a guy. You know, God didn't ask for my vote. You know, some of you, God didn't say, would you like to be bald? You know, like how many? Raise your hand. Like he doesn't ask things. These are part of the genetics that we get when we're born. Right. And now we're smart enough that we have this illusion of self-determination because we can change some of those things. You know, if, if I don't like being bald, I can put some foam on my head or whatever and I can grow hair. Right. So I'm getting we're getting really smart and we can overcome that. But the fact is, God is the creator of us and he forms us like this. And we don't get to say what color we are or what gender, or how tall we grow, or what all those kind of things, right? Our genetics are something that are given to us. And so I think in some way, there is, you know, God forming us is a, a real issue for someone who's born with something that uh, the Bible says this is wrong, and they feel undeniably pulled to it. They feel like it wasn't something they chose, it was something that was created in them, all right? So that's, that's one side of it. The other side of it is that it, the Bible is also very clear that God does not cause us to sin. The Bible is very clear about that. Uh, James 1.13, I wrote it down. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, God is not a participant in your sin. He is not pulling you into sin. He is not driving you to sin. God is not responsible for your sin. James goes on to say, when we are tempted, we are drawn away of our own desires. 
and we choose something that God is not asking for us or calling us to, we choose it of our own self, and we are responsible for it, and it brings forth eventually destruction in our lives. That's what it brings forth. That's, generally speaking, how most of us wake up to the fact that we're in sin, is the destruction that starts showing up in our lives. Like, oh, wait a minute. I guess this is serious business. You know, it would be great if we were wise enough to see it before that, but usually it's like, oh, this just blew up. I guess that wasn't okay. All right, so taking those two things and putting them together. God forms us. God does not create sin. How do we put that together? Yeah, that's why there's a lot of dead space out there, right? Yeah, I hear you. And I think, I mean, to me, I think if you're in this discussion with somebody, there, to me, I think there's a bigger answer to how to deal with it. But I think if you're in this discussion with somebody... I like to say to people this, listen, if you don't choose who you're attracted to, then what do you say to a pedophile? If you don't choose who you're attracted to, and God made them that way, what do you say to them? You know what I mean? I mean, our human logic goes so, so far, but then it train wrecks. Because there's not a person in this society that goes, well, then you've got to express your sexuality, man, whatever. You've got to do it. Well, and not, not everyone who's same-sex attracted could you look at them and say they're same-sex attracted. Yeah. So there's, different, there's differences all across the way. What I'm saying is if you, if you want to isolate it in a logical argument of you are born with your sexual orientation and someone says to you, yeah, and my sexual orientation is I like, I'm sexually attracted to little children, what does our society say about that? I mean, I understand the, the argument, the moral argument that says, well, they're not of an age where they can respond, where they can make an individual choice. I understand that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, what do I say to them? God made you that way, and you, it just stinks to be you because you, know, you have to just live frustrated all your life. Or is there something else beyond that? And, and we don't get to that with this. We just, we just make this argument, and it just ties us up, and we don't know what to do with it, you know? Yeah, there's nothing God gives that's good that Satan doesn't want to twist. Nothing, right? Everything God gives that's good, he wants to twist uh, in any way he can, in any way he can. Let me just kind of walk through my thought process on this with you because I think there's some wisdom that we can take from this. First of all, the correct answer to does God make people gay is the Bible's not that clear about it. It's not. I'm sorry to tell you, but it's not. It's very clear that he makes everybody. It's very clear he doesn't make us sin. There is a tension biblically and a lot of issues that the Bible does not clarify for us to the degree that we can go out and declare it without presumption, without arrogance. This is one of those spots. We don't like that because we feel vulnerable. We feel like somebody might say, well, aha, I believe God did make us this way. You'd be like, hey, that's fine. Because you don't need to win this argument. Okay? This is not an argument where we need... This is not a hill to die on. Did God make them gay or not? Who cares? So the, the, the principle of biblical tension is we know these things. We don't know that thing. The Bible, so I've said to a lot of people, listen, I don't know if God made you this way or if you chose to be this way, and I don't care. Whatever you want to believe about that, I think you have the liberty to believe about that. Does it sound like I'm caving? Well, let me just take you one step further. If you have that argument with someone and you win, what then? Like, this is not a battle you need to win. You don't get anywhere winning that battle. First off, you don't have the authority of the Word of God because as we talk about it here, it's bouncing all over the place. Well, I think this. Well, I think that. And that's what happens. We languish in the ground rules of the game that's set for us by our enemy. And we go, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how to answer that. Well, it's a, it's a trap is what it is to keep us stuck in answering for whether God created them this way or not when the Bible doesn't give us enough traction. For, you should, if it's something that's that clear, you should be able to open up the word of God and go, here you go. If someone asked me, is homosexuality a sin? I can go, well, I'll tell you what I think. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. Now you tell me what it says. Because why? It's so clear, I don't even have to tell you. I can just say, read it. You tell me, right? It's that clear. So I've got authority from the Word of God on that. On this one, I don't. So I'm not going to claim it. I'm going to say, 
you know what? I don't know if, if you was something you chose or something you made. I'm, there's probably people who were made that way, and there's probably people who chose it. Or I don't know. I don't care, right? Because I know this. Whatever God does, he does well and he does good, and the enemy is always there ready to trip and destroy and kill. He always twists everything. So however God made you, he made you for a good purpose, and the enemy is going to come running in to try to destroy it. That's what I know. How do I know that? He does that in my life, right? So you, you have a, a good memory. So what? You're going to trust everything in your life is going to be based on your memory then, right? Because now I got it because I got my memory, right? So anything that God gives us good, we have a temptation to make it an idol, our God, right? Our, our hope, our strength, as opposed to trusting in the living God. So this is not an argument that you need to dive into. This is an argument you can say, you know, the Bible doesn't really say that, all right? So let's flip the page over if you've got any notes. Let's flip the page over because we're going to talk about our response then because I don't think that's where our response needs to be. I would say, and I kind of started us off tonight by saying, I don't think we've done a great job, Christians around the world, at interacting with this debate, gay marriage, homosexuality, same-sex attractedness. What is this all about? Why? Because when you look at the fruit of our efforts... It isn't very godly. If something is the work of God, what does it look like? When, it, when, it's, when God is at work, what does it look like? Fruit of the Spirit. In, in individual people, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit, right? What kind of effectiveness does it have? Powerful effect, because it's the Spirit of God at work, Right? Would you say that Christianity is having a powerful effect on this issue in our world today? Positively? A Godward way? No. It's a divisive way. It's a destructive way. And it's in part because we've gotten outplayed. We thought it was all about the facts and can we prove this and that. And it's a bigger question that we've just blown right past, which is, does God care about you? And we'll say things like this. Well, you know, God loves the sinner, but hates the sin, right? And that's supposed to be like really witty and good, and we're supposed to like have gotten through to them. Do you know what someone who struggles with that hears? God hates me. That's what they hear. They don't, there's no distinction because this is who I am. That's what I grew up in. I, we don't get to make the rules about how they identify, right? We only get to say, how do we address it? So I will tell you right now, if you're talking to somebody who's struggling with that, and you might not even know you are. I've had a lot of conversations with people about this topic, and I didn't know I was talking to somebody who was struggling with it, until later on, they were like, now, the reason I was asking about that is, then I was like, oh no, what did I say? (laughs) Right? So I don't, because I say, well, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner, they don't separate the two. This activity in my life is who I am. There's no way to pull them apart. So if God hates this sin, then he hates me because this is what's in me, right? And that is the exact opposite of the effect we're trying to have as testimonies and lights. We are not trying to bring people to the conviction and conclusion that there is no hope for them with God, are we? I hope not. I mean, our first name is hope, right? As a church, like that's what, we, that's what we're here for. We are here to share the hope that we believe with all of our soul is in Jesus Christ for every person who believes. That's what we believe, and yet we don't always do a great job. So we've tried a lot of things. Look at the effects of them. So we start asking questions like this. Should we go to a gay wedding? How should we engage the debate politically or whatever? We start asking questions about, okay, so what's my response supposed to be? So if... If your friend comes to you and says, hey, listen, I wanted to come out to you that I actually am gay and I'm going to get married and I want you to come to my wedding, what are you going to do? Well, let's go to Leviticus. Here you go. Like, what are you going to do there? What you do there says a lot to that person about who God is, what you believe his goal is in this world and in this life, and what it would be like for them to know God. Think about that. Should we get involved in in the debate on social media and in personal conversations and political activism? Should we... 
be championing a cause where we create a constitutional amendment that marriage is between a husband and a wife. Should we do that? What do you think? Well, here's the question I want you to ask. What is your goal? What's our calling as believers? What are we shooting at and for? And do any of those things take us there or not? Now, who defines our target? Who defines our purpose for being here? God. So what we should be able to do is find in the Word of God our calling as believers and pursue that, right? And if we pursue that, then you know it's going to direct the choices that we make in some of these decisions, um, what we do. Um, before, we, before we get into that goal part, let me, let me just say this to you. Uh, we were going to talk about abortion. Hopefully we'll talk about that next week. But political causes, um, I am somebody who is very... Uh, weary of political hope. And what I mean by that is this. I have been through a number of election seasons where we've got to elect this guy because if we do, everything's going to be great. The Supreme Court will change and everything's going to be wonderful. And and if we elect that guy, everything's going to fall apart. And there's been times we elected this guy and there have been times we elected that guy. And guess what? I have not seen the world get better. This guy in office or that guy in office? Have you? So I start to go, hmm, maybe, just maybe, the hope for our nation is not in who gets elected or what laws get passed. Well, why is that? You know why? Because our problem as a country is not a political problem. It's not a problem of law and order. It's not a problem of morality. It is a spiritual problem. And you will not address a spiritual problem with a political solution. Now, I'm not telling you you can't get involved in activism, but here's what I'm saying to you. Understand, if we passed tomorrow a constitutional amendment that said marriage is between a man and a woman because that's what the Bible says, what have we won? Exactly. What have we accomplished? It, what we're, did God call us to make America a theocracy? Is that what he called us to do? Did he call us to make our country, you know, the, the, the nation that has God's laws as our laws? Is that what we're called to as believers, to set up a political system that's as close to the, the law of the word of God as possible? Is that what we're called to? Is that our mission and our goal? Is that our target? I don't think any of us believe that, do we? It could be a fruit of it, but it, you can't go backwards on it, can it? Like, in other words, this is not, these are not real flowers here, okay? I cannot tape a pear on there and say, look, I just made a pear tree. Isn't that a great pear tree? Woo, it's great. Come back next week, there's going to be like, it's going to produce five more pears. I'm going to tape five more pears on it, right? I didn't just make that a pear tree, Right? What a pear tree does when it's healthy is produce pears, right? A fake plant won't produce pears. I can glue them on there, but it doesn't make it a pear tree. And when Tom says it's a fruit of it, yes, it is a fruit of it. But the key to making that fruit happen is changing the plant, is changing the tree. That tree's got to be alive. The, the problem in America is that people don't know Jesus Christ. That's the problem in America, And until we rise up in that cause, until we share our faith effectively, until the light is shining through us, Jesus called us to be salt and light and witnesses in this world. Are we? Right? And what would it mean to be a spirit-filled, God-led witness? It would mean fruitfulness, wouldn't it? Are we fruitful in that witness? Are people around me coming to Christ or asking questions about Christ? Is God working in my life for the cause of Jesus Christ or not? What I'm telling you is this. We're going backwards at it. We're trying to hem the tide by going to the outer branches and changing what's showing up there, and it's not going to work. Because even if I said to you tomorrow, we're going to change the law and this is what it's going to be, it doesn't change anything about America. There are still lost people Lots and lots of lost people in America. And I will say this even more. 
was having this conversation with, um, with our kids director, Matt, yesterday. The reputation of the Northeast in, in Christian ministry circles around the country is that it's a black hole. They, you may have noticed, they don't do a lot of Christian concerts up here. They don't do a lot of Christian conferences up here. Do you know why? Nobody comes to them in the Northeast. They'll go down south, they'll go to the Midwest, and they fill up right away. But up here in the Northeast where God's called you and me, it's a dark place, man. It's a really dark place. So we are called to be lights here. Now, you have your choice. What do you think would be more effective? Go out and campaign for a constitutional amendment of marriages between a husband and wife and or go out and try to win people to Christ, which way are you going to go? What's your calling? What are you after? What do you want to see happen? I believe, and I think the Bible is pretty clear about this, that the only way for the second to happen in any meaningful way is for the first to happen. And we find that difficult. We find it difficult to pick up the, the gauntlet and, and rise to meet the challenge and have these discussions. And some of you have been having them. I've, I've been getting feedback about our discussions here. Some of you have been having these discussions, and they're not comfortable, are they? They're hard and uncertain. And somebody says, to God make me gay? And you got to go, you know what? I don't, I, I don't really know. That's a difficult thing to do. So engage that. As you go, because that's, that's what we're trying to get after is reaching someone's heart. The problem goes much deeper than political and law. It's a spiritual problem. By the way, um, if you wanted to see that law was some kind of solution, wouldn't you say that then if the law was some kind of solution, that the best laws would be the best solution? Would that make sense? The best laws would be the best solution if law was a solution, Yes. Everybody with me? Would the best laws come from the best lawgiver? Okay, so we've done this. It's called the Old Testament. Who gave the law in the Old Testament? God. Any better lawgiver than that? How did that work out? Hmm. Right? Like, do we not have the context of this? That law is no solution to spiritual depravity? Law shows you spiritual depravity, but it doesn't solve it, and it comes up way short of it. In the meantime, while we're going around campaigning for better laws, we look like holier-than-thou, judgmental, intolerant, all these other things, and we are just so easy to tune out. I do not believe Jesus asked you to make yourself easy to tune out. Yes. Whether we are or not, we look unloving, and it's predictable. It's not like, oh, I didn't realize I was unloving. You know going in right now, if you hold that stance about, you know, the law should be this and whatever, if you hold that stance, you will be seen as unloving, right? So we've got we to dig in here with the Spirit of God. How do, we, how do we do something about this? Where do we go in this, all right? Um. When it comes all down to it, here's what I'm kind of saying about unsatisfying. How much should your church tell you about how to deal with this? Like how much should be dictated by us in your response to this issue in your world and society? A lot? So ultimately, here's what we're shooting at. I want to teach you the word of God. But now what, what Jesus said is, you have the spirit in you to lead you, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all. This is biblical tension here. For some of you, the spirit of God may, you may know somebody, and what you know is that they, you need to draw a line and say, this is it. I'm in or out or whatever. You may know that. For somebody else, that may not be the right thing. They may need to, to take a different tactic. The church does not need to dictate your reaction the church needs to help train you in knowing what the word says, but then the spirit is your guide, right? So I'm going to expect that you, isn't this the, the, the whole goal of church? That you get to know God better because you're desperate for him to lead you in these circumstances as you go. 
that you will have some time in prayer with the Lord saying, God, I don't know what to say to this person. And I just, I don't want to be somebody who is needlessly offensive. I don't want to be somebody who is reckless in my words. And at the same time, I want to stand up for what's right. I want to have the graciousness and the kindness and the compassion that you have for them. I want to represent you well. Help me in that. Like that's my dream come true that you would do that. I want you to know the spirit in you alive and at work to be dependent on him because those who wait on the Lord will rise up with wings of the eagles. That, that idea is there's a individual relationship each one of you have with Jesus Christ that isn't dictated by your church. The problem is we don't like the tension that comes from individual responsibility in that. You would like me to tell you what to say so that you could go say it. And then if it blows up in your face, you go, well, Mark said. But it doesn't work like that, right? Like in your home, if you're call, if you were, you know, mom and dad in your home and you're trying to discipline your kids and you're calling me every night, well, they just said this. What should I say back? Okay. And then like five minutes later, well, this is what they said next. Now tell me what to say. Like that's ridiculous, Right? What do I expect? I expect that you know God personally, that we've taught you the word of God, that you can take it through the power of the spirit and apply it to this situation in the uniqueness of God's created like design for you and use it to direct and grow and train your children. When we do baby dedications up here, we read the word of God that says, fathers, raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, not church, fathers, right? It is your responsibility, your calling, and therefore your giftedness to go do that. There are people in your spheres of influence that it is your calling, the spirit of God's work in you to know how to speak to them. And I'm not talking about certainty. I'm talking about uncertainty to go and take that step forward. So how many people have walked into a conversation where you didn't know what to say, but you need to have the conversation? God ever shown up in those conversations? Right? It's like, I don't know, God, I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to say here, but I know this is the time and I know this is the place. And so I'm walking forward into this conversation. God, help me, please. And then here come words and here come things that you didn't know were in there and ideas and thoughts because why? I'm walking by faith and God's in me and I'm acting like he is. I'm believing it in a faithful, practical, walking forward way. God is in me and so he's going to direct my words as I speak here. That's what it takes. That's what it is. Um, in 1 Corinthians, we're, we're right at the spot in chapter 10 where we stopped, where he's going to talk about different responses to different cases. Uh, in Romans 14, he says the same thing about holidays. He who uh, honors the day, honors it to the Lord. He who he doesn't honor the day, doesn't honor it to the Lord. In other words, there is a leading of God in individual homes to different decisions that are both valid and right, but it is uniquely led by the Spirit of God in your circumstance. It isn't a one-size-fits-all it's a one-size-fits-all as far as, like, you need to be saved, you're a sinner. It's a one-size-fits-all as far as Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One. There's, there's a lot, this is the Word of God, and it's the truth, and it's inspired, and you can trust it. There's one-size-fits-all on a lot of stuff, but in some of those real practical matters, it's not one-size-fits-all. It's seek the Lord, and He will be found. Those who seek me, find me. That's what He said, right? If any of you lack wisdom, ask of God. Ask of Mark. No, ask of God, right? Right? That, the point is, we're all here to help each other. I'm here to help you for sure. But the reality is, my help is in helping you know how to hear God, not me. Because if your hope is in me and knowing the answers, we're sunk. The only reason I do this is because I believe he has the answers and he has a passion to tell them to you. And so let's learn how to listen to him. Right? We cannot be afraid... Totally. We cannot be afraid or put off by this conversation. We need to be in it together. I think that there is even just the, the precious value of prayer. Like, hey, I'm going into this conversation Tuesday. Pray with me, please. We need to be there with each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And Tom's saying, I'm not saying we should dictate. And I, that's exactly right. We shouldn't dictate how we respond, but we should be there with each other and we should be on this journey together. Um, and I have to have security in my relationship with God that says God's going to lead me in, in from the truth, from a knowledge of the truth, not ignorance, but lead me into what I should say and what I should do. All right? All right. So think about this. God gave us a calling, a goal as, as believers. What would you say that calling and that goal is in our world? What is our 
best you can, highest purpose um, as believers. Why are we here? What's our mission? Um, the church of God. To spread the word. Okay? Why? Why do we need to spread the word? To point other people to Christ. Okay? To build the kingdom of God. Right? So, I mean, when we come down to it, that's really what it's about. There are people out there, and even people in here, who need to be pointed to God. That's what we're trying to do, right? Why? Because God is the hope for their lives. Wherever they are, whatever their problem, God is the hope for their lives. We want to see the redemption of God at work in their life, and that only happens when they go like this with their soul, right? It doesn't happen any other way than them going, here it is, Lord, it's yours. Christian or non-Christian, everybody who wants hope in the Lord has to put their trust in him, has to like all on the line, here I am, it's all in, it's yours, it's not mine. That's where there is hope. And that's what our call is. Like Tom said in Matthew uh, 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Interesting. When Jesus gives the commission, the Great Commission, he makes it very specific that we are to not discriminate about who needs the gospel or who gets the gospel. Right? Isn't that interesting? And isn't it also interesting that some of the application of that that has been the most powerfully uh, effective over the past 500 years is that when people went into foreign lands as missionaries, they learned the language and the culture of the place that they went so that they could share the gospel without barrier. Does that make sense? So if we know the culture we live in and the people who are around us to reach, would it also make sense that we would be sensitive to the culture and the language in the context in which we are called so as to not make the unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. Doesn't that make sense? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. Don't make any discrimination between who gets it, because everybody needs it. We're all lost. We all need the gospel. Go find a way. Go find a way. Teach them and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Teach them to deserve all commands that I have given to you. Right? Go, t- go tell the truth to people. Go do that. Right? So we are called, our purpose is, to reach this world. As Jesus left, Acts 1.8, um, you, know, you will be witnesses. You're going to receive power so that you can be witnesses. First in Judea, then in Samaria, right? Or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. In other words, non-discriminatory. Everybody gets it because everybody needs it. That's our calling. And so we want people to know Jesus. Would you say that, to your knowledge, everybody in this world has experienced hurt in their life? Would you say that, to your experience and knowledge, all of those hurts have an effect on people's behavior and choices in life? Before I can affect people's behavior and choices, I probably need to address their hurt. Right? Would you think that maybe it would be ineffective for me to say to someone, stop worrying until I tell them God has an answer for that wound that makes you think worry is your solution? Right? Maybe it would be a good thing for me to tell someone, stop lying, but they're probably not going to have the power to do that until they dig down to the why do I think lying is going to solve my life's problems? Right? So in every circumstance, when people come to Christ, we're looking for redemption. We're looking for the forgiving and the the power of God to transform their life from the inside out. We're looking for that. But that's the only hope there is for anything to be different in their life. The worst thing I could do, even if I was effective, the worst thing I could do is convince someone who struggles with same-sex attraction to be straight and not get them to Jesus Christ. It may just be that the reason they struggle with that is because that's the only way they could be convinced that their problems are too big for them and they need Jesus Christ. That their wound is too deep and it's unsolvable on their own and they need Jesus Christ and it's the only thing that would convince them of that is that struggle. 
Could be. And what a harm it would do if I just convinced them that the Bible taught them this was a sin and you need to stop it. And they go, okay, I stopped it. Taken care of. Wrong. You need to know Jesus Christ. And when people do come to Jesus, think about your experience. When you come to Jesus, is it an immediate transformation from lost to found and perfect? Or is there some process that goes on thereafter? I mean, some of you, when you came to Christ, some things dropped away right away, right? Just gone. Praise God for that. But in my experience, that is not the norm. The norm is there's this process that happens over time where you learn how Jesus inside of you, the spirit living in you, changes what you do and how you think. And and that walk of faith transforms what you choose to do or not do. And you see things differently over time. There's a process that goes on, right? Why would we give the impression to someone who struggles in this particular area that you need to take care of that first? And then God can love you. Then God can accept you. What I really believe in my soul, I think you believe it as well, is that the only hope for anything to be different down there is for their soul to be different first, right? And then if that takes 20 years for God to get to that, if there's some wounds underneath that he needs to get to first, who am I to say, God, you better hurry up and get to that thing, right? Like to me, that as, as a shepherd, as a pastor, it's one of the things inside of me that says, I cannot tell you why God works in the pattern that he works. But I can tell you that he works in ways that sometimes I would go, I wouldn't start there. I would start over there. But God starts where he starts because he's God. And, and the thing that you might think is the big deal might be the last thing that's on the list for God. God might be working over here underneath. Let God be God. Let him be the one who is doing that change from the inside out because that's what redemption looks like. Right? Redemption looks like a moment of realization, a moment of faith, and, and this, this trust of my soul to him. And then God begins to transform me from the inside out. He redeems me immediately. He, he washes me clean and forgives me and places me as a son. But then, just like Hebrews says, he is being, he's perfecting those who have made, been made perfect forever. He is making us holy, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he is perfected forever those who are being made holy. Like, we are holy, and now he's making us holy. Well, that process is a great description of what he's doing in believers, drawing us and drawing us and drawing us into him. A couple of scriptures I want to share with you as we consider um, what should this look like, all right? Um, Luke seven thirty four, and there's also a passage in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 12, same, describing the same scene. Jesus says, you've called the Son of Man a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, that's significant because um, religious authorities, teachers, religious figures were not friends with tax collectors or sinners. As a matter of fact, Jesus gives an example of their prayer. The Pharisee gets up and goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like them, those horrible, wicked people. I thank you I'm not like them. There's another guy who prays in Jesus' parable that goes, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this man went away justified. He didn't have his doctrine all straight. He didn't thank God for his you know, son coming to die and be buried and rose again. And he didn't do all, but he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there's transformation there. Interesting thing. When you look at Jesus' reputation, Jesus' social circle, the people who listened to Jesus, responded to Jesus, and flocked to Jesus, it was the sinful crowd, not the righteous crowd. And I wonder if we have the same attractiveness. If Jesus is alive in us, do lost people like us? Are they attracted to Christ in us? Or are they repelled? I would say in this debate, most of the time they're repelled. And that's not acceptable because it's not very following of Jesus Christ, wouldn't you say? I would venture to say if Jesus were here on earth in person, walking and moving and teaching and all that today, that the people who would be considered the most sinful would be the ones who were the most around him. He would be the ones that he went to, they would be the ones he went to, and the ones that found the most hope in him. We should reflect that as a church. 
Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. Do you know how to do that? Me either. So let's learn. What do you say? Let's say, God, teach me. Teach me how to speak the truth in love. I don't want to, and I, I had, like I said, I've had this conversation very recently. Um, I don't want to say to somebody, no, no, it's fine. God doesn't care if you're gay. It's cool. You're good. Everything's good. I want to say, well, the Bible definitely teaches us that it's wrong. But I also want to speak it in love that says, now I want to show you that that's not the issue for you, whether you're gay or not. I could care less where you stand on that. What I care is where do you stand with Jesus? Because that's the only hope for your life. You know, that's what I want you to know about. That's my passion. Because I guarantee you there's hurts and wounds in your soul that are just like in my soul that only Jesus can answer and satisfy and heal. Only knowing him can bring life to your soul. 1 Corinthians 5.12. We looked at this as we went through 1 Corinthians. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Apostle Paul. Are you not to judge those inside? In other words, the reputation of the church on this particular topic is we're going to tell those outside the church whether they're right or wrong. Paul says, what business of it is ours, what they're doing outside the church, to judge them? And his point in the verse following is God will judge them outside. The ones that are outside are under God's judgment. I don't have to be a voice for God. God's doing a fine job with that, right? I, we need to be people who are discerning of what's going on in the church as brothers in Christ, as relationship, as a family of God, as connected, having that, those deep bonds of love. But outside the church, we don't have a voice of judgment on them They're God's to judge, not ours. Interesting. Acts 15, 19, there was all these Gentiles getting saved. And if you can imagine um, the context in which this happens, Gentiles are the people who are the pagans, the heathens, the filthy, the nasty, the, I don't even want to, when I come back into the land of promise, after I've come through a Gentile land, I'm going to shake the dust off of my feet because I don't want that dirty, Gentile dirt in Israel. So I got to get it off of me before I step into the land of Israel. That's pretty intense, wouldn't you say? Like I can't sit down at a table with Gentiles and eat with them because they make my food unclean. When we were sharing with the synagogue, they were not super particular. But one thing that we kind of were really careful about was the kitchen because it was ceremonially clean. And for me to walk into the kitchen and start using utensils or turning on sinks and stuff like that would make it unclean for them. That's a pretty, pretty big deal. And so as Gentiles start to come to Christ, there's this, just like, what do we do about that? They have this big conference in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And the pastor of the church in Jerusalem is the brother of Christ, the half-brother of Christ, James. And James, after he hears all this stuff, stands up and says this as kind of the introduction to his, his decision. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's a really interesting statement in this particular topic. Are we make it, making it difficult for those who don't know God to come to know God by the way that we're laying burdens on them that aren't the point? Because that's what he's saying. You know, should we, should we tell them to be circumcised? Should we tell them about meat offered to idols? Should we tell, what should we do to get these Christians on track so that they're, they're going in the right direction with God? And he says, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for them because they're turning to God. It's a good, it's a good model for us. So what I'm saying basically is this. We as a church, this is our call. We want to turn ourselves completely to God. Lord, here we are. We want to know you. We want to, to, to listen to you, to hear you, to grow in you, to trust you, to worship you. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to turn ourselves wholly and completely to you in humility, in honor, in reverence, in awe. We want to turn ourselves to you. Then we want to be used by you to shine a light in the dark world that draws all men to you, that your name is lifted up by, by what we do and people are pulled in. Um, because there's hope in Jesus Christ, and we want them to know Jesus Christ. And then when, if they will come to Christ, then Christ can work in them. I don't have to. I can certainly take the truth to them and say, hey, this is what the Bible says. You know, I don't know what God's going to do in your life about that, but I know this. And let God work in them, because the power of God is in them. 
That's the redemptive process of this world. I will tell you, if that kind of stuff were happening in our country, if we were passionate about the lost like that, some of these other debates and issues would just dry up and blow away. I will tell you this. A lot of what happens in our political sphere is about power and money and passion. It's not about real change because laws make not very much real change. It's about getting people behind campaigns and getting someone in power so that they get money and they have a big voice. And we get sucked into it because it's our principles and our morals and our... And okay, but come on, we need to be wise, wise as serpents, right? Gentle as doves, but wise as serpents. We need to be smarter than that. Than to just get sucked into somebody's cause. Think three steps down the road. What does this do? Do you really believe that that is going to solve this issue? I don't think anybody here does. So what will solve it? Let's put our energy into that. And I will tell you, God created churches. The church you belong to is one of them, but there's thousands across this country. God created churches to be the place where spiritual change happens for people, where we grow in Christ and where others are invited into a relationship with Christ. Now that's the hope of the world right there that Jesus Christ is offered to people for their lives to be transformed. Pretty good. That's what we want to be about, and that's what we want to be for. All right? So those are my thoughts. Hopefully it's something that we can reflect on and digest, and, and God will lead us as we interact with other people. All right? Any questions for... Yeah. I think that's a great diagnostic. Romans 1, when it talks about you know, God gave them up. He gives us the source of that. They turn their back on God. So the answer to all the things that come out of that is their hearts to be turned towards God, right? The answer isn't stop this and this and this. The answer is, where's your heart? You know, do you worship the creator or do you worship creation, created things? Do you, are you wise and foolish or do you humbly bow before the Lord and recognize what's visible from the creation of the world? Romans 1, great point. Yeah. Now, and but that begs the question, doesn't it? Why? Why is there so much pride there? You ever thought about that? I'll tell you if you if you ever sit down and talk with somebody at length, there's the pride is a defensive mechanism against wounds. That it, almost without fail, if you talk to people who struggle there, there's there are wounds from the Church of Christ, the body of Christ towards them. Real or imagined, it doesn't really matter. There's still wounds. In other words, it may have actually happened to them or they may just have felt that it happened to them. It doesn't really matter. They're still bleeding. And their pride, a lot of times, I would say 90% of the time, is, is a defensive reaction against you're not going to make me a victim of yours again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be strong and not weak. But yeah, and then we react to it like, we're going to crush you again. Like, oh, great. <laughs> Twice crushed, that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, I, two, kind of twofold response. First of all is, if they, if they have a problem with lying, do you feel compelled to tell them about that? So, like, we're not the police of all the sins, first of all. And secondly, um, I would not want to kind of act like my view of them and their identity is completely centered or based on that particular problem. So I, here's what I would say to that. How do we change that, that initial knee-jerk? Rob's talking about their, kind of like they're grinding on us, and you're talking about that's constantly on my radar. I would say, what does Jesus see when he sees them? How, what's his heart towards them? And Lord, draw me into your heart like that, because that's the right heart, whatever that is. So let, like, let Christ convince you of how he sees them, and then let him grow that heart in you. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think probably the most powerful way is certainly through what he does and what he says, but in prayer. I think in prayer, we connect to the heart of God in a different way than anything else we do. Because we're at, even when we pray for somebody else's request, we're going to God saying, you're the only one who can handle this, whatever. But if, you'll, if you really engage prayer, what happens is you start to become like invested in this person like Christ is invested in them. And when they when something happens, you're like, yes! And it wasn't anything about your life at all, but you're in, you're, or you weep with those who weep, like Christ does. And so you get really drawn into his heart. And so I would say, praying for them, 
not a, please make them not homosexual, but praying for them. God, speak to them. Let them know you. Call that for their good. That draws you into the heart of Christ in a powerful way. Yeah. And I'm not denigrating the voice of the church. There are preachers out there who are, you know, big voices in the church or whatever. I'm just saying with that opportunity comes a lot of responsibilities to set a tone that models Christ. And I don't know if we've always, humanly speaking, done the, the justice to the cause of Christ in that. So we got to keep working at it and get better. Is that the impression we give to people, that that's what God's response would be because that's our response to them? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I think it's something for me, hopefully, for all of us, will drive us to prayer to study, and to a heart that is passionate for the cause of Christ and not the cause of gay or straight, because that's not the cause we're in. We're in the cause of redemption, the cause of God's glory, the cause of people knowing a God who came to die for them to save them from sin. Um, And let's let nothing get in the way of that as we go forward.